Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I want you to imagine that after church this morning, you've been given a task. Your task is to head up to Darling Street, and you're going to walk along the street, and you're going to ask anyone who stops and talks to you, and you will look like a crazy person doing this, trust me. Uh, You're going to ask, uh, ask people a question, and you're going to write down their answers. The question is this. What's wrong with the world? That's all you have to do. Wander up the street, pad and paper in your hand, ask people a question. What's wrong with the world? Let me tell you two things that I can guarantee will happen if you do that. And I know this because I've done this twice, not here in Darling Street, but in other places. I've done that, videoed people and got their answers to this question. The first thing that I can absolutely guarantee you is this. Everyone will have an answer. Every single person that you stop will be able to tell you something that they think is what's wrong with the world. 
You won't get a single person who will say, oh no, I don't think there's anything wrong with the world. I think it's perfect just the way that it is. Every single person will tell you what they think is wrong with the world. But here's the second thing that I can guarantee you. Almost every person will come up with a different answer. They'll all have some different view about what's wrong with the world. Let me tell you the range of views that you'd get. Greed, racism, poverty, overpopulation, corruption, breakdown of the family, global warming, intolerance, and the list would go on and on. Every single person will give you an answer, but almost every person would give you a different answer. Um, Every generation has a poet or a musician who can give profound insights and help us understand the world that we live in. Uh, For the generation a little bit before mine, it was probably Bob Dylan. He was the guy who, who really summed up our world. For my generation, it wasn't Aerosmith, okay? I just want to point that out. But they did have a song that came out in the early 1990s that did make an extraordinarily profound point. Uh, You might remember the name Rodney King. Rodney King was the man who was viciously beaten by the Los Angeles Police Department. And someone videoed it and the video went viral. Everybody saw it. And the riots that followed in Los Angeles following this beating were just extraordinary. Uh, Dozens of people died, hundreds of people were injured, fires were burning right throughout Los Angeles. You might remember seeing it on the news. It was a, a terrifying time in Los Angeles. Aerosmith wrote a song called Living on the Edge, and this is the words of the song. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way, and God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. We're living on the edge, and you can't help yourself from falling. Now, first of all, you can thank me for not playing the song, because I'm sure you wouldn't have enjoyed that. But the words are quite insightful, aren't they? Here's this guy, Steve Tyler, the lead singer of the band, saying there's something wrong with the world that we live in today, and I really don't get what it is. But I do know that we're seeing things in a different way to the way that God sees things, and that's what's at the heart of our problem. It's quite profound, isn't it? See, because if you ask the Bible the question, what's wrong with the world? The answer is emphatic, clear and simple. Human sin. That's what's wrong with the world. And we encounter the problem just two pages into the Bible. So if you've got your Bible there, grab it and look at Genesis chapter 3. This is where the problem begins in our world. Uh, As I said, over these past few weeks, we've been looking through these 10 major doctrines of the Christian church, and today we come to the issue of sin and suffering. But before that, we saw that God had made a perfect and ordered world. God had created a world that was good as far as God was concerned. But here in Genesis 3, we see where it all begins to go wrong. Sin enters into the world. Sin enters into God's good creation. And the very heart of human sin is mankind rejecting God. But it's more than just rejecting God. See, sin is us wanting to be God. 
Sin is us wanting to decide for ourselves what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. Sin is knowing what God has said and then saying, you know what, I think I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. I think I will decide what's best for me. And that's exactly what we see happening in Genesis chapter 3. Have a look at verse number 4. This is the temptation that Adam and Eve gave into. This is what the serpent said to them in the garden. You will not surely die. Eve had just said to the serpent, God told us that if we eat the fruit of this tree, we will die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God if you eat this fruit. That's the temptation that they gave into, isn't it? That's the choice that they made. They knew what God had said, but they chose to reject what God said because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to decide for themselves what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And that's the very nature of sin right throughout our world today. Now you see it unfolding in the stories that follow in, in Genesis. Uh, you look in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 4, we've had the story of Cain and Abel. God warns Cain, he says, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. And do you know what Cain says? You know what, I'm not interested in what you've got to say God, I'm going to do what I want, I will decide. Go down a little bit further in chapter 4 and you have this strange story about this man called Lamech. Uh, After Cain had killed his brother Abel, God provides protection for him so that no one will harm him. God says that anyone who harms Cain will will be avenged seven times over. But look at what Lamech says, chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adazilla, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. It's a frightening arrogance, isn't it? And talk about wanting to be like God. That's what he's doing, isn't it? He's saying, if God's going to avenge Cain, well, I'm going to go 10 steps further than that. I'm going to avenge myself 77 times. But the grasping at being like God doesn't end there. You get to Genesis chapter 11, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel. God had told the people to spread out and fill the face of the earth. And what do they decide to do? They say, you know what, God, we think it's going to be better for us if we stick together. We're going to build a tower here on the plains of Shinar, and we're going to reach right up into heaven because we're going to be like God. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. And that's what constitutes sin today. It's us wanting to be God. Us deciding what's right and wrong. Us deciding what's good and evil. The essence of human sin is exactly the same today as it was way back there in the Garden of Eden. Well, if that's the essence of sin, then what is the extent of sin One of the things that's glaringly obvious in the Bible is that it didn't just impact Adam and Eve. The story rolls on from Genesis chapter 3 and we see sin spreading at a fairly frightening pace. I mean, it's epidemic proportions here. And what's obvious from these chapters is that every single descendant of Adam and Eve has Adam and Eve's blood flowing in their veins. 
Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. Did you see the steps that follow there in that verse? Sin entered into the world through one man, through Adam. Death came as a consequence of sin. And death came not just to Adam and Eve, but to everyone, because ultimately everyone was sinful. That's the extent of sin. There are none of us that are immune to it. There are none of us that are separated and cut off from it. It it affects every one of us. And did you see the end of the verse there? Did you see the point that that Paul makes? Sin's not just a matter of law-breaking. Don't get the idea that sin is a couple of things that I have done wrong. No, sin's actually far more deep down than that. It's far more ingrained in us. Even when there's no laws to break, Adam says... Sin's still there at work in the world. Sin's now part of our makeup. Through Adam, every single one of us has inherited a sinful nature. Every person born into this world is born sinful. That idea doesn't sit terribly well with a lot of people. And it certainly doesn't sit very comfortably with our society. Our society would like to believe that babies are born innocent, pure, perfect, uncorrupted, a clean slate. Clearly people who've never had children is what I say. See, every single one of us is born. And I have to confess as a parent, it was slightly depressing to know that I didn't have to teach my children to be deceitful. That actually happened naturally. Not saying that they are now, they're lovely and I do cherish them all. But that's the extent of our human sinfulness, isn't there? Theologians talk about it, uh, the term that's often used to describe it is the total depravity of man. Now don't misunderstand what that title's saying, it's not saying that everything man does all the time is always bad, that's not the point at all. What it's saying is that man is... Every aspect of life is permeated by sin. There are no areas of our lives that are immune to human sinfulness. There are no areas of our lives that are not tainted by sin. So the extent of sin is serious. Every single person is born sinful and there's no area of human existence that is immune to sinfulness. So that brings us to the effects of sin, if you're following along on the talk outline on the notice sheet. But I don't really need to say anything about that, do I? I mean, you've only got to turn on your television to see the effects of sin in our world. Let me give you the top stories from the Sydney Morning Herald on Friday. I just grabbed this, thought that'd be a place to go to find out what's happening in our world. Here are the top stories. The death toll in Egypt continues to rise. They now think well in excess of 600 people have been killed as a result of the hostilities over there and there is no sign of it ending anytime soon. Uh, The leaders of the major parties in this country are struggling to find the moral low ground when it comes to asylum seekers. It's hard to tell who's going to win or is it lose in this battle except asylum seekers. 
Uh, a scout leader is currently doing prison time, is now the main subject of the investigation uh, of the Royal Commission into Sex Abuse with Children. Uh, he's, he's had a 20-year reign as a scout leader and numerous people uh, have been affected. Their lives have been damaged by this man. And Eddie O'Bead's back in the news to help us restore faith in New South Wales state politics. So that is four of the stories from the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald uh, this, uh, this Friday. Look around the world. It's not hard to see the effects of human sin. It can sometimes seem in our world like it's every man for himself, everyone wanting to be their own God, everyone wanting to decide for themselves what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. The effects of sin are everywhere. And if you'll forgive me for being a little bit presumptuous, you only need to look at your own life to see the effects of human sin, don't you? But let me take you back to Genesis chapter 3. So the effects of sin are quite devastating. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that the three things that were really good about creation are the three things that have now been damaged by sin. So human beings were created to be in God's image, made for a relationship with God, in God's image, made for relationships with each other, and in God's image, made to rule over this creation. But as a consequence of sin coming into the world, they're the areas of our world that are most seriously damaged. Human sin means that our relationship with God is now damaged. We're banished from the Garden of Eden means that relationships between men and women are now strained because of that sin. It means that our rule over creation, a thing that was intended to be a pleasure, is now painful toil. But above all, the biggest effect of sin is the one that God promised when he spoke to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Death has entered into our world because of human sin. And death is what every descendant of Adam can expect. It's not simply physical death that the Bible's talking about either. It's talking about us being dead to God, shut out from God's presence is the way that Paul describes it in Thessalonians. The future for those who die outside of a relationship with God is an eternity apart from God. Genesis 1 to 11 shows us the entry of sin into this world and it shows us the spread of sin in this world. The problems that we see in our world, the greed, the poverty, the oppression, the injustice, they can all be traced right back to that one event. That's where it all began. Now, if that were the end of the story, then the Bible would be a very short and a very sad story, wouldn't it? But that's not the end of the story. Those first 11 chapters of of Genesis, it's really trying to tell us what our world is like. It's really trying to set the scene for what it is that God is going to do. Genesis 1 to 11 is really the introduction to the book and the book really starts in Genesis chapter 12 with God making promises to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, the story focuses right down on one man and his descendants and that line keeps going until we reach Jesus. 
The rest of the Bible, you could probably sum it up as saying, is it, is it, it is God fixing our sin problem. So when it comes to sin, there's two things that you really need to be convinced of. If you want to accept what the Bible says about sin, there's two things you need to be completely convinced of. First is is this. We need to be firmly convinced that the problem of sin cannot be fixed from our end. Your sinfulness and my sinfulness cannot be fixed by us. Our sin problem is serious. We can't dig ourselves out of this hole. No amount of effort on our part, no amount of good works on our part is going to bring us back to God. You can't undo sin by being good. Education won't fix our problem. Doctors will never be able to find a cure to our problem. You can't legislate against our problem. But as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see that God has done something about our problem. Jesus came and died on the cross. He took the penalty for our sin. Uh, This is how Peter and Paul sum it up in, in nice, simple, clear sentences. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Or Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is what we deserve because of our sin. But life is what God is graciously willing to give us in Jesus. So you need to be convinced of that. You can't fix your sin problem, but thank God that he has through Jesus. Second thing is this. Adam's sin means that every person in this world is cut off from God. Everyone is born sinful. Everyone is born outside of friendship with God. Every person who you know who hasn't placed their trust in Jesus is still in Adam's camp. They're cut off from God outside of a relationship with God. Everyone who hasn't come to believe in Jesus is still cut off from God. No matter how nice they are, no matter how valuable they are to the community, everyone born outside of a relationship with God is born outside of the garden. And the only way to be made right with God is by placing our trust in Jesus. It's kind of bad news and good news, isn't it? I mean, the bad news is that we are sinful. And I don't suppose that anyone's really going to deny that. We know the impact of sin in our own lives and in our world. But the good news is that God has done something about our sin. God has dealt with our sin problem through the life and death of his son. You may have heard of uh, uh, this man, G.K. Chesterton is his name, uh, English author and writer uh, who was writing in the early 1900s. In 1907, the London Times, the newspaper in London, ran a series of articles entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And they invited some of the best-known authors and writers at the time to contribute articles to this series that they were doing. And so they'd written to Chesterton to ask him to make a contribution. His was by far the shortest of the articles written. It said this, 
Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, the point that he was making wasn't meant to be trite or simplistic. He was actually trying to make a theological point. See, sin is not somebody else's problem. Sin is a problem that I have in this world. And I think Chesterton was trying to drive that point home. He was a man who believed what the Bible said about sin, believed what the Bible said about him, and believed what the Bible said about how to be made right with God. So we have to face the reality of our sin problem. And once we've embraced that fact, then we're ready to hear the good news, and we realise just how good that good news is.